from the stables in Milton Keynes, home to world-class music, entertainment, is Milton Keynes International Festival, and a whole lot more besides. This is Turn Up The Volume, with your host, Nick Coffer. Welcome to another year of great artists, gigs, performances, workshops, and podcasts at the stables in Milton Keynes. Turn Up The Volume, here to shake the January blues for you. Although, rather confusingly for me, I'm actually recording this episode a few days before Christmas. So you've got the, have I bought the right presents and will we have enough food version of me in this episode, rather than the uh, comatose, why did I make the same mistakes at Christmas again version of me. But in terms of guests today, well, I don't think we could offer you anything better than the following three guests. Legendary singer, songwriter and broadcaster Tom Robinson, the truly wonderful Thea Gilmore, and one of the great Welsh singer-songwriters Martin Joseph. So sit back and enjoy some of your favourite artists taking the time to chat and opening up just for this podcast. Let's kick off with Tom Robinson, and where even to start with Tom Robinson, a broadcasting and musical hero of mine and champion of new and upcoming artists. Tom is coming to the stables on January the 13th and with a cracking band to boot. So much to talk about, and I'm delighted to say that he joins me now from his home studio in South London. Tom, great to have you on Turn Up The Volume. Thank you very much for having me. How nice. Do you know, I was, uh, I was doing my reading and uh, I saw a quote recently where you said it's it's been quite a journey and you know better than me that it's our job as broadcasters to to look at that journey and I thought I had a pretty good handle on it in my head bearing in mind that it only started well in my head with 2468 motorway what I didn't know was that the previous seven or maybe eight years had been a time of immense personal challenge for you that's where the journey started uh yeah it started with a, a nervous breakdown and suicide attempt in my teens um in rural Essex and um, and then seven years in a therapeutic community in Kent, uh, which absolutely saved my life. Finchton Manor was its name, and uh, it was run by a man in his 70s who was an ex-public school housemaster. Um, and he'd had a lot of success in the 1930s uh, helping emotionally disturbed boys kind of cope with school and uh, inhabit their own skins. And... Uh, Basically, a psychiatrist asked him if he would consider starting a place of his own. So he and his wife started uh, kind of offering hospitality and they'd have um, troubled teenagers to come and stay with them. So it was an informal setup um, rather than an actual school as such. Yeah. Um, and uh, by the time I got there in 1967, it was a community of about 40 or 50 youths aged between 14 and early 20s about eight staff, <laughs> um, about seven or eight dogs, <laughs> and about 30 cats living in a Jacobean manor house and grounds um, in in the unheated accommodation. And it was <laughs> completely chaotic, but uh, very, very, um, well, helpful, you know. Uh, am yeah. I right in saying it wasn't just uh, young adults with mental health issues, it was people who'd maybe found themselves in the criminal justice system, and you must have been exposed to, to personalities and characters that you'd previously not come across. It was a totally different background from a Quaker boarding school, which yeah. is where I, what I'd come from. Um, but, uh, yeah, some some of us there had come via the criminal justice system, some via the mental health system, and some just straight out of the school system because, you know, just uh, so wretched, uh, as I say, inhabiting our own skins that it, it, it offered a kind of salvation. But the good thing about it was that um, nobody was concerned about what your past 
what you'd done in your past. Nobody wanted to know what kind of miseries you'd been through in your younger life. Um, it wasn't like a competition. Yeah. And um, all that mattered was what sort of person you were in the here and now. And so uh, it was only years later that I discovered some of the hair-raising hair backgrounds that some of these guys had been from. <laughs> and uh, my song, Martin, about, uh, you know, a couple of, couple of lads. East End car thieves. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, was very much based on people that I'd met at Finchton. And not based on you and Danny, who you also met at Finchton. Yes, I mean, he and I both come from, you know, basically comfortable middle-class backgrounds that, for all that they were physically comfortable, were emotionally uncomfortable. And um, as I say, it was kind of what kind of person you were when you were there, rather than what your background was or what you'd done or what you'd been. Yeah. And um, we all... Basically, the um, the setup was four meals a day, cooked by uh, boys on a rotor, and the chores were all done by us. We did our own cleaning, cleaned the toilets and what have you, kept the thing going. And uh, if you decided when it was your turn to cook that you weren't going to cook, then nobody ate. <laughs> right. So, you know, that's quite good therapy yeah. <laughs> in terms of persuading you to take your communal responsibilities seriously. Keep you all in line. Uh, the Danny in question, of course, went on to be your guitarist. Yeah, but I mean, the thing is, Danny arrived um, a couple of years after me, and he was four years, five years younger than me. And uh, he couldn't play the guitar at all. He just wanted to be a rock star. But <laughs> he had this third-hand uh, homemade guitar and used to uh, be seen around the place posing with it, practicing all his struts and poses. But he couldn't play a note. <laughs> <laughs> and the joke with Danny was, you know, like he'd, co he'd come and pester you, show me another chord. And so um, in the time of punk rock, Danny got wind that I was starting a band and I right. wasn't much of a singer at that time. I was only like uh, good enough to be a backing vocalist in my first band, Cafe Society. And so when I'd seen the Sex Pistols at the 100 Club, I suddenly realised you didn't have to be able to <laughs> None sing of in that, tune. Yeah. You didn't have to be able to sing in tune. Uh, you just had to kind of have uh, a connection with the audience and be and be real. And so, um, yeah, I was forming the modest little Tom Robinson band just <laughs> trying to recruit people and Danny heard about it and called up and said, can I come and be in your band? And I thought, well, if it's got me as a singer, it might as well have Danny as a guitarist. And it was only after we started playing together that I realised in the intervening seven years, he'd actually learnt to play really, really well. And he was an That's exceptional uh, player. He was you know, one of the finest guitarists of his yeah. generation, really. Am I right in saying there was a link there as well with Alexis Corner, or am I imagining that? Yeah, it was Alexis Corner was an old boy from Finchton. Uh, he'd been there in the 40s and um, he'd come back on a visit for one day with his family and gave a concert in Mr. Lywood's, the principal's study with about <laughs> 20 or 30 people crammed into yeah. it. And uh, that was the day that Danny first arrived at Finchton. And uh, I first clapped on him at the same time as I clapped eyes on Alexis Corner. And we both clapped eyes on Alexis Corner. And we both thought, whatever that is, we want to be one it of them. You that. know, So, um, yeah, it's inspired me to be a band leader and a singer and indeed a broadcaster. Yeah. And uh, Danny, I think, was very impressed by that. Would you reckon the uh, the Tom Robinson of today, uh, the 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 six music fresh on the net Tom Robinson would would have said about the Tom Robinson band at the time when their first single came out? Um, I think I would have gone blimey. Yeah, <laughs> you know that that was it was a pretty good band, I have to say. 
um, least least of all its goodness uh, was me as the front man. I think it had a really solid drummer, had a brilliant keyboard player with Mark Ambler, who was only 16 when the band started, uh, but he'd been trained by Stan Tracy. And it had the extraordinary guitar playing of Danny Custo. And I think the energy of that band would have been enough for me to go, blimey, that's really something. I mean, the lead singer's a bit earnest, you know, a bit full of himself, but the rest of them are great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there were some decent songs, you know. Uh, they've stood me in good stead and people have loved them over the years. And um, I'm not knocking them, not complaining <laughs> at all. 2468 Motorway, Glad to Be Gay, Martin, Power in the Darkness are still songs I play today that yeah. people appreciate all these years later. And I was looking at how to talk about Glad to Be Gay. It's not an easy task when you consider how many times you'll have been asked about it in, in various guises over, over the years. And, and then I came across a story of a young man who was going to take his life but I think stopped when he heard this song. And I think it was relatively recently as well. And I wonder if, if that's it, that that's the story. That's the question that the power of a song to make such a difference. Yeah. I mean, it actually happened at the time and I, it was just a letter I got from America. Right. And, you know, the, the album was hardly ever heard in America. It was TRB weren't famous in the States at all, but uh, I think it glad to be gay got played on college radio somewhere in the Midwest. Um, and, yeah, this young man had just had his mother tell him that she wished he'd never been born and uh, tell him to, told him to get out of the house. And he'd gone up to his bedroom and taken an overdose and was lying on his bed waiting to die And with the radio on. Glad to be gay, came on the radio and he stuck his fingers down his throat and sicked up the uh, overdose uh, and caught a greyhound bus to San Francisco. And that's where he was writing to me from to thank me for the song. What a story. And, you know, whatever else, you know, whatever, whatever kind of um, regrets you might have uh, about things you've done in, or said in the past or foolishness or you know, uh, ill-considered things one might have said, I think that's something it's hard to take away from that yeah. to somebody it was a life-changing song so um i'm just thrilled to have had a part in writing that and uh, making that available yeah. but bear with me on on this theory as well because you know you look at how it still remains very very relevant to that same person in that same situation in 2023 and i wonder whether part of it is that no matter what someone's background is when they when they come out when they're gay when they've got parents who they have to come out to they are starting from zero in that moment in the same way someone would have been 10 years ago and 20 years ago and forth there's no heritage or, or not necessarily any, any heritage in that family at that moment it's a it's a it's a fresh story in that family and i wonder whether why that's one of the reasons why it does remain so relevant well nick i think i agree with you and in one sense uh, that that it is the same every time, and in another sense, it isn't the same every right. time. But just because of the social situation in the 60s, uh, when I tried to take my own life because I was in love with another boy at school, um, I literally would have rather died than tell anybody else at school, including the boy himself, that uh, I was in love with him. Because there weren't any role models yeah. at that time. Uh, that's the huge difference between then and now. Uh, and between UK society and society in many countries of the world, including much of Africa and Russia and many other places, that is that if you grow up and discover to your horror that you are the person your parents have just warned you against, yeah. um, 
then at least in this country today, you can look around and see queer politicians, sports personalities, TV presenters, uh, pop stars, and huge online resources available to help people come to terms with who they are and overcome any kind of self-hate they might feel. Uh, But you're right, though, at at the same time, each new generation of queer kids or, you know, just non-conformist kids has to find their tribe for themselves. You grow up, you tend to grow up in an alien nest like cuckoos. You you don't find other cuckoos in in a thrush nest. No. You know, that's that's how it is for many LGBT kids uh, growing up in, in an alien nest. You are alone at first, and uh, I think it, that can be really troubling and that can be um, difficult. Whereas I think if you were, say, from a, the only Jewish family in a certain village somewhere, you know, and there was anti-Semitism around, you would at least have your family background to arm you against that. And the community, yeah. You know, you, you'd, your parents would understand, they would prime you for it, you'd know you weren't alone. And even if you were, uh, for, for instance, if you had special needs, your parents would know that and they would at least support you yep. and everything. And I think you're right, that it can be difficult for uh, LGBT kids uh, to to actually find their own tribe and find their sense of self. and be all right with who they are. It's a difference between parent-led and child-led. In the situations you described there, of course, the support is coming from the parents in the first instance. Um, In the situation of of a kid who's coming to terms with his his or her sexuality, um, they're coming to the parents more often than not. Um, And and it it runs in the opposite direction. Um, I want to talk about one other song. Um, I want to talk about War Baby. And again, perhaps in a slightly different way that got me thinking, because your your career had sort of, you know, gone, it flown, it it sparked, and then it went down. the other way in terms of you know you owed loads of money and it was it was it was a mess and and i'm going to quote you something that neil gaiman said uh, it's a famous speech it's available online it's called the make good art speech and it's very worth seeking out on youtube and he says that nothing where he ever started out with the intention of it making him any money ever made him any money that's always <laughs> it's, it's always stayed with me you know as, as someone who's always been a creative as well it's always stayed with me that that you know the things i've done that have succeeded i swear i did it because i was driven by creative impulse not because i thought it was going to you know make money so he's right neil gaiman of course he's right who am i to say he's not right but and, and that's pretty much what happened with, with war baby isn't it well, I certainly wasn't tr- trying to write the comeback hit at the yeah. time. Well, I was overall with my life, that was the only thing I was focused on, was trying to make some sort of comeback because uh, I'd, I'd been a has-been and then I'd progressed to the point where I was a never-was, you know, by seven years after 2468 Motorway. Um, I was all washed up. And I'd already been a late starter, so I was 27 when 2468 Motorway came out. And by the time I was hawking um, War Baby around the record companies of London yeah. at the age of 33, people were going, you've had your chance, mate. You know, <laughs> Forget it. Thanks. This is hardly another 2468 Motorway, is it? Be honest. Um, and so, yeah, if, I, if I'd been trying to write a comeback hit, and I did make several spirited attempts at writing one without any success. Um, if I'd been trying at that time, I, I would, wouldn't have written that song because it was far too long. It didn't rhyme. And, 
you know, it didn't have any kind of conventional mm-hmm. song structure to it. But of course, the question is, what comes first, the, the music or, or the message? And what's more important, the music or the message? I mean, can you can you create a message in a rubbish song or can you have, you know, a poor message in, in a great song? Which way around does it come? I think... Not saying it was a rubbish song, by the way, to be clear. No, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, it isn't a message song in any sense because I still don't know what it's all about yeah. even now all these years later because it came from deep in my own unconscious um, I actually was living in Hamburg at the time and that evening I got phenomenally stoned I mean more smashed than I'd ever been in my life <laughs> I lost about four hours in Hamburg and uh, by, sure the time I cr- by the time I crawled back over the threshold at midnight and uh, tipped myself into the room I was uh, borrowing um, I was hardly aware of anything and I just s- sat and wrote uh, about seven or eight pages of A4 pad scrawled stream of consciousness drivel really <laughs> uh, I found the found the original paper only yesterday while I was going through my bits of paper in my wow. house trying to sort them out and uh, yeah the very first words on the page are only the very young and the very beautiful can be so aloof so uh, it was a hell of a job to try and wrangle that eight pages down yeah. to something that you could actually sing. How did it feel to find that 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 pad, that that sheet of paper? Um, well, grateful, I think, is the thing, because when you've had one serious hit followed by not very much, um, people write you off very quickly. You're a one-hit wonder. Yeah. Um, so when you then have a second one-hit wonder hit out of the blue. A few years later, people don't write you off quite so quickly. And on the basis of having had two songs out of the blue uh, that won people over from scratch, you know, that weren't songs written for the fan base. They were songs that strangers heard and liked on first hearing, 2468 Motorway and War Baby. Um, Once you've written two of those, then I guess, you know, people cut you a bit more slack and go, well, he he might be all right then. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He might. His other stuff might be worth listening to. Let's bring this a little bit more up to date. Obviously, you're coming to the Stables on uh, on the 13th of January. Um, let's play a track, a more recent track, and you've very kindly given us uh, an exclusive for this podcast. Do you, want to, do you want to tell us what it is? This is a song from the album I made in 2015, which was kind of almost my first album for 20 years. Um, I'd been working for Six Music for uh, nearly two decades at that point, and... Um, Fans had been saying, why don't you make a new record? And I was saying, well, I haven't got a record company and uh, there isn't really an obvious demand for it. Uh, And we were steered in the direction of Pledge Music, which is a crowdfunding company. And it enabled us to put it out there and say to people on the mailing list, do you want a new album? And if so, do you want to buy it in advance so that we can make it? (laughs) And enough of them did that we were able to not only record a top-quality album, uh, you know, with a decent producer, Jerry Diver, uh, and get it manufactured and put it out there. But as soon as it was released, we were out of debt. And that's never happened before, you know, in in the course of a 40-year career. All the times I've worked with conventional record companies, you'd put out a record and you'd be dead, you'd be hugely in debt. Whereas with this... We'd broken even. At the moment it was released, it was all paid for. And every copy sold after that was sheer profit. Yeah. So made an album I was very happy with in 2015. And this was the opening track on the album. Uh, and at the time we were touring the album, 
Uh, we're playing it live, and this was at Sage Gateshead. Me and the producer, Jerry Diver, who's playing fiddle and doing the whistling on it. Uh, it's a song called Home in the Morning. Hey, pretty David, so glad you've made it. Come sit over here in the light. I'm sorry the setting is kind of depressing, but I need a favor tonight. The laughs and the parties were great while they lasted. Now that it's time to move on, I need a friend who can tie up some ends. Cause tomorrow I'm gonna be gone. Goodbye to London, so long to St. Mary's So sorry I couldn't stay You nephews and nieces, I'll love you to pieces But I'm going home in the morning My Rolex and phone are there on the table The keys to my car and the flat Cut off my credit cards, pay off the milkman, recycle the bills on the mat. The boss and our money are yours if you want them, just stick all the rest in a sack. Then drop the whole lot at the charity shop, tell the neighbors I'm not coming back. To London, so long to St. Mary's So sorry I couldn't stay You nephews and nieces, I'll love you to pieces But let's just call it a day Goodbye you ravers, you movers and shakers You lovers and brothers I've known Kiss me goodnight and then switch out the light Because I'm going home in the morning Shred all my letters, burn the old Polaroids Stick all those Macs in the trash Empty the treasure chest under my bed Oh, and flush every crumb in my stash Swear on your life, you'll wipe my hard drive and smash any backups you find. There's no need for my mother to ever discover the life that I'm leaving behind. Goodbye to London, so long to St. Mary's, so sorry I couldn't stay. You nephews and nieces, I love you to pieces, but it's time to call it a day. Goodbye, you ravers, you movers and shakers, you lovers and brothers I've known. Kiss me goodnight and then switch out the light because I'm going home in the morning. Home in the morning, Tom Robinson, an exclusive the turn up volume here from uh, the stables in Little Kings. And Tom, you mentioned earlier on that you, you've had a, you've always had a good eye for a good drummer. You mentioned the uh, the Tom Robinson man and, and the band that you are bringing to the stables on the thirteenth has an amazing drummer, doesn't it? 
<laughs> yes, Andy Treacy from Faithless and Galliano and uh, Groove Armada. I mean, yeah. he's a wonderful groove drummer. And uh, I had the privilege of playing with him very early on in his career in, in the uh, 90s when he was fresh out of music college. And he's kind of been my go-to drummer ever since. So we've got Andy Treacy on drums, but equally we've got his mate Andrew Adam Phillips on guitar, uh, who currently plays guitar with Richard Ashcroft, amongst others. And uh, I've had those two guys working with me for so much longer than the original band was <laughs> ever together. Uh, and it's all about playing music rather than about kind of, um, I don't know, settling scores or one-upmanship, which is what you get with uh, yeah. uh, early bands getting together. And it, it's just a joy to play with them. And then we have uh, Lee Forsyth Griffiths on backing vocals and acoustic guitar, and Jim Simmons, who's a kind of professor of the keyboards, is brilliant. Mm. Uh, so it's easily the best band I've had, and I've had that lineup fairly stably for the lo- stably for the last twenty <laughs> years. I first came to the stables years and years ago, long before the current venue was there, when it actually was a stable. Yes. It was the long, low wooden building with the uh, PA and (laughs) the the mixing desk built into a little cabin outside the venue. And it's now uh, sta- that's now stage two, and of course you've got the, the main auditorium next door. So, oh, there uh, we go, yeah. I, I, I had a great time that night, and uh, every time I've come back, it's been really good since. And in fact, uh, with Faith, Folk and Anarchy, uh, with Steve Knightley and Martin Joseph, we actually recorded our live album at the Stables. Uh, because it was such a good audience and such a great night. Martin, who I'm speaking to very shortly on this very same podcast episode, all I will say with regards to Faithless is that they are quite possibly the best live rock band I ever saw, if I can use that term for Faithless, and it was entirely down to the incredible rhythm section that just pushed them through. So I think if you're, if you're talking about having uh, Andy on, on your drums, it's going to be it's going to be quite a sight. So January the 13th, Saturday, January the 13th, um, 8 o'clock kickoff, tickets available at stables.org. It won't surprise you to know, it is very nearly sold out. Uh, there are a few tickets left as it stands today. So go to stables.org uh, to find out more. Get your tickets before they disappear. Or, of course, you can call the box office on 01908 280 And for you, Tom Robinson, best places to find you on air and online? Yeah, well, just put Tom Robinson in. And if you don't get that um, <laughs> Stephen Yaxley Lennon, then you'll get me and my website. Do you know you, you you say that it, literally when I did my searches on you? I was like, okay, this is awkward because there are clearly two Tom Robinsons around at the moment, as you as you mentioned, uh, one who goes by well, he should go by a different name. Listen, Tom, it's been really lovely to catch up with you. Uh, we'll look forward to welcoming you to the stables uh, in the middle of January. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. There's the wonderful Tom Robinson. Don't miss him at the stables with that elite quality band that he plays with. From one great singer-songwriter to another, Thea Gilmore is back. And when I say back, I really mean back. Her new eponymous album sees her confidence striding forward after a very difficult period in her personal life, a period which she details in her previous album, Aftermath. She's coming on her own at first uh, to the stables. No band this time. And she joins me now from her home in the north of England. Thea, welcome to Turn Up the Volume. Hello, hello. I find it quite funny because here we are, uh, we're recording this, what, a few days before Christmas. So we're in full sort of Christmas stress. And by the time um, our listeners get to hear this, that they'll be in sort of post-Christmas come down. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure how to pitch this. Should, should, we, should we be in full Christmas spirit or, or sort of January blues? What do you reckon? I'm always in full Christmas spirit, so let's stick with that. Excellent. So I shall now play some Jingle Bells music. No, I'm not. Let's let's <laughs> let's let's talk about the music. And something that that I often talk about with guests um, on this program is is that journey 
between personal stories and personal uh, background and how it then comes out in the music. Why am I mentioning this? Because your last two albums, so your current album, which is named after yourself, um, and your previous album, Afterlight, for me, they, they could not better demonstrate someone going through a journey musically and and personally the contrast is really stark isn't it yeah i think so i mean in a weird kind of way but those two albums sort of feel like my first ever albums that i've ever made in in a strange sort of way they were certainly the first records that i was able to flex my muscles just me myself and uh, the first albums of mine that i've produced and it's it's been a real you're right it, it's been a real journey and i think you can hear that in in the songs and in the way that the the records sound you know i didn't want to be tied to what people assume i'm going to sound like and and particularly with with the Thea Gilmore album it's I think it's surprised a lot of people the, the the sort of different elements that I've woven into it. There's there's elements of electronica and there's you know there's there's elements of dance in there as well. And and there are quite a few quite unhappy fans about that, which I, I th- has amused me greatly. And how's that manifested itself? Are, are they are they angry on social media? Are you, are you getting are you getting your album thrown at you at live gigs? I haven't. Well, I haven't done a live gig since I re- released, actually. So um, we'll, we'll have to see about that one. Maybe, maybe they'll use it as a discus and, uh, and and kind of try and take my head off. I don't know. Um, no, it's been mostly uh, social media and a few direct emails of, of distaste. It's interesting you're talking about social media there because you're on, I think it's album 20. It could be album 21. We were trying to work it out before this interview. And we, we didn't get a final figure. And that got me thinking about, about eras. Uh, sorry, we can talk about eras here. Um, that, that you've basically straddled because on the one hand, you, you were in the sort of old music business and here you are in the new music business. So it sort of all rolled into, to one career, that, that pre social media career. And now that career that is really all about online. And it's been a, a real kind of joy to, to watch it, but also sort of slightly sad as well, I think, in a way. In that, yeah, I was lucky enough to, you know, I started doing this when I was 16 years old. And so my my growing up happened in the 90s and my music career started in, in the late 90s. And uh, I was really lucky to be able to build a career back in the days where people were prepared to pay for music. and. That was, a, um, it was a wonderful time really. And, and, you know, a time where you, you did feel that music was valued and, and I suppose the last kind of real musical movement would have been Britpop. Yeah. Um, I'm, I mean, you know, obviously there's grime and there's, there's rap, which are worlds that I don't know that much about. Um, but, and they are very definite movements and huge movements too, but they, they straddled into the digital era, but the last kind of analog movement was, was Britpop. And, and that was very much sort of my my growing up time um but i was lucky enough to build a, a group of of people who like i say were prepared to pay for it and then i've brought them into the digital era with me but the digital world offers so many new ways to connect with people and a very instant musical delivery system if you like through streaming and that's really interesting to work with too even though i think it does tend to devalue the the musician not the music, it doesn't devalue the music, but it de- devalues the musician and the musician's con- kind of contribution to, to the industry. Um, but I've always had this kind of grassroots to fall back on. And I do worry a little about young artists kind of just emerging into this digital era, blinking and thinking, well, you know, are there actually careers to be made yeah. in the same way that I was lucky enough to make mine? It's not all a bed of roses, though, is it? Because if you think about it, uh, fans now have 
direct access to you they can they can direct message you on instagram and on twitter and i remember back in the day when my, my, my dad was a, was a, an indie band manager in the 90s ironically and if you wanted to get to one of those artists you had to write to the record company or you had to write to the manager and if you were lucky you'd get like a signed photograph in mid 80s into the early 90s of course now everyone has a bit of you and, and, and feel and they feel they have that sort of sense of ownership and, and, and that right to get to you it can definitely be tricky. I, again, I'm, I, I feel really lucky because I, I don't have that many kind of odd people yeah. who follow. There are a few, um, but no odder than me. So, um, and, and I kind of, I don't know, I suppose you sort of feel like there's a degree of, of a duty of care to people who, who, who kind of care enough about what you do to, to actually get in touch in the first place. And, I think, yes, it's a double-edged sword for sure. It can take up an awful lot of time. But ultimately, I look at my life and think how incredibly lucky I am to do this and call it a job. And I feel that I would, you know, I'd much rather be be answering people's questions online than, than, um, you know, uh, other types of jobs that that theoretically I'd be doing (laughs) if I weren't doing this. So uh, lucky is what I feel mostly. I'm literally fighting every instinct in me that the radio presenter is going, okay, ask her what she would have been if she wasn't a singer. <laughs> what? I didn't well, ask actually, you. No, I, <laughs> I, I, I'll answer God. if you want. God. <laughs> I always wanted to be a doctor and then, and then realised that I, I don't think I, I am good enough with people to be one. So I decided to stand on stage instead and sing at people. You see, anyone listening to this is going to find that a bit odd because automatically you think that someone who is able to connect in the way that you have done over such a long period of time both with your music and with your live performance to then say i'm not very good with people that makes me wonder whether actually performing enables you to in effect put on a bit of a mask that enables you to connect with you know it could be 500 could be 50,000 people sat in front of you or stood in front of you if you'd asked me that question three and a half, four years ago, I would have a hundred percent agreed with you. Right. Um, I definitely there was a veil over everything I did. Now I've dropped that. Um, sometimes it comes back up, and sometimes I, I there. I think for anybody who stands on stage, there is a degree of not hiding, but you have to put a kind of persona on on your stage presence. Um, because otherwise you're boring. I mean, I, you know, ultimately I'm just a, you know, fairly bog standard 40 plus year old woman who, who can sing a bit yeah. and that's boring. So unless I, unless I kind of, you know, give you the, this sort of in-depth detail of my life, which then makes it interesting, a bit more like a soap opera, other, <laughs> you know, you have to put that veil on yeah. um, to a degree. But but also I figured that the more the more you can lay yourself open, the more people can connect with you because people have the same experiences as you. We're, we, you know, we're all living not the same life, but similar experiences. We all go through similar stuff. We've all been betrayed. We've all had sadnesses. We've all had joy. And the more you can lay yourself open to people, letting people into that world, the the better really. The and and I guess in in weird kind of ways, it sort of helps as well. It helps me certainly. And and I've spoken to other people that it helps too. And and that's a lovely thing. That's a real privilege, I think. You know, it's so interesting hearing you be open like this. And I, I don't want to be like a ham-fisted psychoanalyst, but it's, it is relatively easy to, to join the dots up here because you said that uh, Afterlight and your latest album, in effect, were your, your first, your, your two first new albums, implying that before that had been in many ways you know, not the real you. You hadn't been able to discover the real you. And then you release Afterlight, you know, under a persona, which talks very, very personally about a very difficult time in your life. Music has been a real vehicle for you to tell that story, hasn't it? 
Yeah, I th- I think me yeah, it's 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 words really and and music is the kind of the wonderful delivery system for for words were my first love that they've always been a part of my life and I you know even as a kid I spent hours and hours just slaving over writing poetry and and books and then I realized that actually if you you want to deliver poetry in a really effective way putting it with music is is the best possible way. So so Yes, it's it's definitely a catharsis being being able to sit down and and write sometimes stuff that you're not even a hundred percent sure what you're talking about until the song emerges and becomes becomes this sort of weird three minute piece of therapy. This yeah. is all sounding incredibly horrible and heavy, and it's not generally speaking, it's not. But but it's it is it's quite a process. So I, I, you know, I kind of. I always call it letting the pen go loose. You let the pen go loose and, and just your brain just kind of like discharges onto a, onto a piece of paper. Yeah. And, and you know, a half an hour, an hour later, you, you've got something that you can then almost kind of retro psychoanalyze, if that makes yeah. sense. No, it makes complete sense. I was just interviewing uh, Tom Robinson before you and I quoted him uh, something from a, a Neil Gaiman speech, which is well worth uh, watching online. Um, and it's called The Make Good Art Speech. And, and this reminds me of something he said um, as well. And he was talking about, you know, the creative process and, and when you know you're being a proper artist. And he said, it's only when you feel exposed and it's only when you feel vulnerable that you're actually even just starting to be a creative artist. Does that make sense in terms of the, the story that you've just told? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think that for a very long time, I was I was quite guilty of of not exposing myself, not of just putting those walls up, um, and kind of almost hiding behind the the floweriness of you know. I've always been good at, at kind of creating great imagery with words, but but there was also a degree of disguise in that as well and sometimes the best way is to just say it and my word have you said it with, with this latest album which is absolutely brilliant and, and it really does feel like an album where you're reclaiming yourself and i can say that confidently because you have named it after yourself as we mentioned earlier yeah do you know what i always shied away from eponymous albums i always thought i honestly i always thought that's a complete cop-out you just couldn't think of a good title and <laughs> and it, for the first time in my life i i thought there isn't a title for this apart from this is me reclaiming my name, basically. It's me trying to make a really strong um, point that is don't don't come assuming you know what I am. Yeah. Um, and Thea Gilmore yeah. doesn't belong to anyone else. Absolutely. I, I stand alone and I'm very happy to be that way. And, uh, you know, it's a... Again, I, I come back to I'm very lucky to be able to do this and to be able to express myself in this way. But it's really important that it's me. Yeah. Was it liberating to, to produce yourself again? I mean, obviously musically, but I wonder emotionally as well. Hugely. Also terrifying. Um, but I, I've also come to realise that if I'm not scared um, when I'm making music, then I probably shouldn't be doing it. Um, if I'm not scared of what people are going to think of what I put out there, then I'm not putting stuff out there that's important enough to be scared by, if yeah. that makes sense. So, and producing is, I never realised what joy it was, um, to be honest. And, and being in a, being in a recording studio and I, you know, which is something I've done pretty much my entire adult life. It, it's such a, it's a space full of so many talented people that generally speaking, if you, if you get imposter syndrome, which I do a lot, um, 
as do all of us, I'm sure, it's very easy space to just sit back and let other people take the reins. And for me, producing this record, a lot of it started at, at home, so there was nobody else to take the reins. It was all all on me. And then I would bring the, the tracks into um, my favourite studio in Manchester and work with an incredible engineer there who totally understood the need for me to produce this myself, the reason I was doing it, but also had an incredibly creative brain and I could say any number of random phrases um, and he would understand exactly what I meant. Neil Gaiman would absolutely love you. I implore you and indeed anyone listening to this to, to, to search out the Make Good Art speech on the internet. It, it, there's loads of versions of it uh, on YouTube because he talks about the imposter police. We've all got imposter syndrome and he talks about the imposter police turning up at his, he always feared they'd turn up at his door with clipboards uh, and, they, and yeah. they would be there to question whether he actually was any good at that writing thing, which had made him lots and lots of money. Right, let's do something scary for you because you say that it's scary when your music gets out there. Uh, let's hear a track from your album. What, what, what do you want to uh, give us to listen to? I'm going to give you a song called She Speaks in Colours, which um, which was kind of the only song on the album which was entirely written about somebody else. It was a, about an incredible family that I met um, during part of the Radio 2's uh, 21st Century Folk project that they did. First day, she lived like a sunray.
She Speaks in Colours from uh, Thea Gilmore's gorgeous new album, uh, self-entitled eponymous uh, album, uh, Thea Gilmore. Now, listen, you mentioned earlier on how if you don't feel scared when putting a bit of music out, you're not actually doing your job and it's not worth putting it out because you haven't put yourself through it. And talking of scared, and you're coming to the stables uh, in early February, you're pretty scared on stage. I I read you say that you you suffer from stage fright. A terrible stage fright awful stage fright and and until 2021 I think it was I'd never stood on stage oh no once in my entire life I stood on stage on my own um and now I'm kind of carrying whole shows as a completely solo artist which is a real kind of you know that that's an incredible progression for me because I never thought I'd be able to do it in fact I was told many times I would never be able to do it who told um, you that so ah my my old producer and partner yeah um and the one time I did do it, it was very much picked apart um, in a very negative way. Yeah. But it, 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 again, it's incredibly liberating to be. Able, and also, there's a there's a there's a real joy on in connecting with the audience, just as one person on stage and and an entire audience. It's a much more personal experience. I love playing with a band. It's it's great fun. But there's something incredibly intimate about being a solo performer on stage. It's kind of like we're all in it together. Um, and and that's lovely. And the stables is literally one of my favourite venues in the whole country. So um, so it will be a, a, a wonderful night, hopefully. All I would say, uh, joining the dots up of what you're saying without exposing too much of your own personal story, it just sounds wonderful that here you are a few years out of a of a you know of a difficult breakup, and uh, and we can hear in what you're saying that it was a, a situation where you just couldn't be yourself where you had someone telling you that almost that you weren't good enough you're just saying there you weren't good enough to to be a solo artist and here you are striding out with a wonderful new album and a a solo tour it's just great to hear you in that place it's a to be honest it's a miracle that that i'm i'm here and doing it so i i hate being one of those annoying social media people who talk about being blessed but it is a a genuine blessing that that i'm able to do what i do and call it a job so i never take it for granted well it's a blessing for us as well thursday the 8th of february i do love a midweek gig there's something really nice about about a wednesday (laughs) or thursday so thursday the 8th of february um at the stables it says here 2024 that seems like a long way away for us talking uh, to each other in, in the middle of December. Um, so 2024, so eight o'clock um, tickets available, of course, at stables.org. Um, it is very nearly sold out. Uh, do have a look online. There's there's a sort of chunk of tickets on the sides, but I would say get in there quickly because uh, uh, Thea will sell out. Stables.org uh, for tickets or box offers on 01908 Don't forget to check out Thea's album, uh, Thea Gilmore. And uh, where can we find you online and elsewhere? Where's, where's the best place to get hold of you? You can get hold of me anywhere, Facebook, X, Twitter, um, Instagram, but theagilmore.net and my mailing list are always the best places to start. Thea, you've been lovely and I'm looking forward to seeing you in February at the Stables. Thanks so much for having me. You know, that's why I love doing this podcast so much. Artists get a little bit more time than they're perhaps used to getting and, and they open up in a, a really personal way as Thea did there. It's going to be brilliant seeing her stride out on her own and perform at the stables so let's finish with a man who you heard tom robinson mention earlier on a longtime friend of his and regular visitor to the stables martin joseph coming to the venue on january the 27th martin is well he's a really hard talent to try and describe because there's often more energy in him and his guitar than some bands manage to muster when they've got five or six members he's just a phenomenal performer a true storyteller one of those slightly rare breeds of both extraordinary singer 
an extraordinary guitarist as well. And if you're still wavering, Martin joins us now from his home to persuade you otherwise. Hello, fellow Bruce Springsteen fanatic, Martin. Lovely to have you on the podcast. Hey, Nick. It's good to be with you. <laughs> We're going to have to give you your own room, uh, dressing room at the stable soon, aren't we? I mean, you, you were there barely, what, a few months ago with Bob Harris? Well, I'll tell you something. That's true, Nick. But I, I think that if they ever count up the most amount of appearances at the stables, I think I'm going to be in the top five because I first started playing there in the 80s uh, when it was the little place out the back. Yeah. Uh, I probably played there at least six times in that era. Uh, and then since then, I don't think there's been many years since they built the new building that I haven't done a show in there every single year. So I would be surprised if uh, there's many ahead of me in terms <laughs> of uh, appearances. I, I think like uh, I could camp out in that dressing room just about. It's almost as if, Martin, you've released, I don't know, an album a year since you started. Uh, it's its not far off that. Um, this was when I went full-time in about 1982, uh, which is, what, 40 years now, in fact. So there's not quite 40 albums out there. But um, having said that, I wouldn't want you to listen to a few of the uh, <laughs> earlier ones, having said that. So, uh, but yeah, I've, I've, I, I, I suppose prolific is a, is a word that yeah. you would put alongside. I, I just... Uh, I'm one of these people who never have hit this thing they call writer's block. You know, I I uh, I, I feel it and I hear it and understand it, but I, I, uh, I it's never sort of landed at my door. For me, the expression through music is almost for me writing like writing a diary, as it were. You know, so I'm constantly writing writing songs, even waiting to do this uh, interview today with you. I've been fiddling around and oh, there's a few ideas, so I take them immediately. You know, so it's a constant process, and so um, I do. Uh, I do tend to put a lot of stuff out there. Is it the difference between someone who feels they have to write, perhaps it's part of a, a record deal or they've got a publishing deal or they're writing for someone, whereas with you it feels like you just really want to write and so it keeps flowing all the time? Uh, yeah, I want to. And I also I would grab a bit of your first sentence and I, that I have to too because um, it's my way of dealing with, with stuff, Nick, to be honest. Um, my guitar is my cheap psychiatrist you know it's it's the, to sit there and sort of to um be able to um illustrate my feelings and uh and, and what's going on in my life through music is it has become a way of life to me um and the the joy is that you know it appears that those songs then uh, do the same for others and that's that's kind of uh, you know my benchmark and that's that's kind of how i've kept going for so long because uh, just you know, as I say, I, I'm 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 just narrating my my life on a on a yearly basis. It's clearly like a counselor because you give it one hell of a hard time on stage. Uh, yeah, I'm not known for <laughs> being shy. Um, I, it's funny because it, it, I'm not. If I walk into a room, you know, I'm not that sort of centre of attention, party loving guy. I'm really not. I'm quite withdrawn and and and. Uh, but I think it's, it's there's something of the of the teenager up there still trying to. Uh, you know, uh, prove himself as it were, you know? So yeah. when I see the lights of the eyes, then it's, it's like, you know, I, I really admire performers who allow an audience to come to them. They walk on stage and they're confident in their craft and they just allow audiences to, to gently discover. Whereas I'm just, you know, I reach out with my fist and grab them by the shirt and say, oh, this is it, you know. And, so, and do, the same, yeah. do the same with your, with your guitar. Talking of songwriting, you've got a, a brand new band member in the house, haven't you? Um, I, wa <laughs> I, I, I wonder whether that's shaped in any way the way that you're writing music. Now, perhaps explain who this band member is. Yeah, well, um, I, uh, my wife and I, Justine, just had a little boy, Jack. And uh, Jack Brian Joseph, and uh, I am officially, I think, the Ronnie Wood of uh, acoustic <laughs> music. Um, at the age of sixty-three, it wasn't uh, 
something I had planned many years ago, but it's beautiful. And so I, it's beginning to shape um, some of the songs, obviously, you know, as I look at him and I'm, you know, yeah, that brings all sorts of thoughts to mind. Um, and there's a, the first opening track of the new album uh, is called Folding and it has the line in it, a vast goodbye and a small hello. Oh. And I, I lost my dad uh, literally a, a year to the day uh, uh, this interview. And um, and so that's, you know, that, that cycle of life. And, um, uh, and yeah, so um, it's, it's very poignant for me at the moment, but it's, um, it's amazing to see just this, this beautiful little, little baby and think, oh my gosh, here I go again. Cause I've got, I've got three grown up children who are equally as beautiful to <laughs> Why me. Why have you and, done uh, it, Martin? Why have you done why it? Why have I done it? I've done it because I love my wife and uh, Justine, uh, it, we met. 10 years ago, she's, uh, she's just uh, in her early 40s and desperately wanted to be a mom. Yeah. Um, and I, I was, okay, you know, but now that he's here, I, uh, it's beautiful. Yeah. And of course, as you say, it's, it's just that never-ending cycle of life. You often hear stories of where, where one family member goes and, and another one comes in. And, and then there's this whole thing with, with longevity, isn't there, with music and, and legacy. And of course, you, your music is your legacy. And that must really focus your thoughts now having baby Jack because you are... You, you you can really see who you're leaving this legacy to. Yeah, I I, I guess so. I mean, there's there's uh, another reason to to write songs, but there was always reasons to to write songs as such. And my one of my overriding emotions of it, um, Nick, is is thinking actually what sort of world has he been born into? <laughs> uh, because um, as you know, I I write a lot about social issues, yeah. social issues, and we have a, a, a foundation that works alongside the music, and we're working all over the world. So. You know, with with uh, this year has been just awful in so many ways, and uh, so you do look at him and think, well, uh, you know, I wonder what it's going to be like when for you, et cetera, et cetera. So that sense of responsibility to continue to challenge and to provoke through lyrics uh, and to encourage all that sort of stuff, um, uh, I feel in, you know empowered to do that even more. I suppose yeah. because uh, you know I, I can't change the world, but at the same time, but we we songwriters think that we're somehow doing it as we <laughs> as we sing that song. You know, we're not changing the world, but we might be able to change somebody's world. You know, it doesn't matter if if your baby is sixteen weeks old or in my case sixteen years old. You still look at the world and think, right, yeah. uh, they've got a, a tricky time ahead of them. Absolutely, it's, it's a absolutely, difficult time for yeah. for these young kids. Yeah. Um, I do wonder. You know, you're talking about like your heritage and the, the number of years you've been performing. Do you ever lament that you were maybe born into the wrong era? I mean, there's there's been such a resurgence <laughs> in male solo guitar playing singer songwriters. See people like hey, that bloke Ed Sheeran. He's done quite well. <laughs> do you think it would have been different for the Martin of thirty years ago if, if that Martin was around? I don't know, in 2010 or starting in 2010. That's a that's a great question. I, I actually already dealt with this on the last album. There's a song called "Born Too Late," and I, I rem reminisce that I couldn't have hung out in Laurel Canyon in 1971 <laughs> with Journey and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Uh, you know, "Born Too Late," um, and uh, there, there is a part of me that thinks that that, that it's not this era. But I I feel like if I was like born in 1950 instead of 1960, yeah, then then I think what I do would have, uh, you know would have uh, sort of resounded a bit more at that point. But also, this is the thing, I, I wish that I could you know, go back now. I, I honestly believe, without, again, without wanting to sound arrogant, um, Nick, that I'm on top of my game. What I do now is better than it's ever been. Yeah. So I would like to go back to signing that contract with Sony Music in 91, whenever it was, and be the artist I am now uh, instead of the artist I was then, because I do feel that, that with that, 
a huge machine behind me, I would have been able to impact. I mean, I always impact, you know, I went out, I opened for huge stars in stadiums and I did it solo like Ed does, you know, I did that sort of stuff. And so, they, but they couldn't quite make the record. And I, and I just feel the songs now are so much better, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, that's my, that's, that's what I feel. I wish that I could be what I am now, but I've been that way 30 years ago when I signed with the biggest record company in the world. But yeah. I wasn't, and that's like... You, you say that you wish you'd been born in, in the early 50s. What you mean is probably sort of mid to late 1940s, signed to Sony Records and, and been Bruce Springsteen. I mean, let's be honest, this is, <laughs> this is you know, it's quite funny because my, my the listeners to this podcast, they, they must get bored with my very minor uh, Bruce Springsteen obsession. Um, you know, it's like, no, no, Nick, you can't compare, a, I don't know, an 80s female pop duo to, to the boss just you're doing that thing again Nick but, but <laughs> at last I am chatting to the artist so I, I can actually do this without any guilt at all you did a whole album of covers in 2013 I did. It, is, I... it is brilliant uh, and the, the best compliment I can pay it so bear with me on this one the best compliment I can pay it is that by the end I think when you listen to that album you forget that you're listening to Bruce covers because without sounding too much like Britain's Got Talent you, you, you made those songs your own is that a tricky balance to find uh i i don't know i suppose I, it's not a balance i try to find it's just me singing those songs i mean i like you i i i i, I respect and admire and love bruce so much the interesting thing about that album was that a guy called dave marsh wrote the sleeve notes to it yeah, and he's, dave, he's, um, he's the don journalist know, isn't he well yes absolutely he put he put Bruce on the front of Rolling Stone, yeah. I think, and you know, whatever. But he, he said something beautiful in that because he said, who was the guy that signed him to uh, to CBS at the time? The, the famous guy who oh, signed Bob Dylan. Yeah, he'll uh, come Dylan to me in a bit, well. yeah. Yeah, um, but he said that uh, when he signed Bruce to uh, CBS, I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the sort of artist that he thought he was signing at that time. What, in other words, this record that I made was what he would have wanted Bruce to, you know, that's the, that's the, the artist he thought yeah. he was signing. Which Clive was, Davis? Uh, no, it wasn't Clive. No, it was. Um, oh gosh, I'm going to kill myself in a minute. Uh, anyway, he, he was he, he was pre prior, prior to Clive Davis. Uh, so could, you know, in the but um, anyway, it'll come up. Um, you can look it up and stick it in the interview. Um, but that was that was such a lovely thing, and 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 um, uh, and and yeah, you know that era there. You know the the the, uh, the angst guy on the guitar, yes. acoustic. You know, and and and. Uh, I just feel that that's kind of where my my where, where I belong, and and these days it's very different, and I understand that. But I, you know, I'm grateful that there are people who want to listen, and um, and it continues to grow. And I have a global audience. I tour all over the world. I play to hundreds, not thousands, but I make a living, and yeah. and I I can pay my bills doing them something that means so much to me, and um, that appears to be of use to other people. So it, it it's it's worked, and I'm not going to get bitter or anything. I'm I'm very grateful for what I've just briefly with, with that Springsteen album again I mean I, you mentioned there that the, the Springsteen community talked about it a lot it, it got quite a lot of traction on the forums that I may or may not be a member <laughs> of did the man himself make any mention of it I was told by Dave that he uh, that, that was the, the original catalyst for me doing that record was I went on E Street Radio in New York on Dave Marsh's show and, and sang um, and broke down a song called um, One Step Up uh, yeah. where I take the song apart and, and show how I think Bruce sums up the human condition within this song. Um, and uh, an off-air afterwards, he said, you know, Bruce really likes the covers you do of his <laughs> songs. And uh, and he said, if you want to do an album, I'll write the sleep notes. And that was it. And that's as close as I've come. And, and Dave um, did said, you know, I'm going to get you to sit down with Bruce uh, 
over dinner one night, but that never happened. And, and I think Dave is not too well these days, and, and uh, uh, sadly, and uh, and so that's probably not going to happen. But that's okay. You know, uh, and your your uh, mate your mate Rob Bryden, who spent time yes. with him and didn't tell you about it, and just messaged <laughs> yeah. you a WhatsApp photo later. I mean, that's, that's yeah. very unkind. He does that all the time. <laughs> I just I know if Bruce is in town, I say you hang out with Bruce, and then he'll send me. A, a, it said it sent ten minutes ago, and there he was with his arm around. <laughs> You, you mentioned how how you use your music to, to good effect and and uh, as a means of really getting a message across. Obviously, now really inspired and motivated by by your baby Jack as well. And I, I wonder what is more important for you for you is it the music or is it the activism or are they basically one and the same? I, I think it's one and the, and the same, Nick. I um uh you know I w- Justine and I decided to set up the the Let Yourself Trust this foundation. Uh, 10 years ago now and uh, she runs that side of things and it's quite a unique thing because it changed project every six months so we don't have any charity fatigue we're always mm-hmm. working with lots of different uh, and uh, we've never had a grant off everyone but we've raised and given away over half a million pounds now um, from my audience to to 16 different projects across the globe doing Incredible. beautiful things and I, I i see that kind of as an extension uh, because uh, they just got to a point where i just didn't want to sing about it i wanted to get my hands a, a little dirty i've always had the um uh, the, the blessing of being able to uh, travel to some of these places and, and stand amongst people who were uh, in difficult situations, and it always affected me in a great way. So, um, so it, to me, it was just an, another step to to, to form the, the charity and, and to run that like we do. Um, and um, I, I, I wish in some ways, you know, I no, I don't wish. I was going to say that you know, I was just someone who wrote, you know songs about life or whatever and and didn't didn't have to feel like you had to tackle every sort of issue that came up but um but you know billy bragg that there's a tradition woody guthrie you know there's a tradition within within music of telling that story and, and, and being political with it some you know bob dylan was political for a while i still think he is in many ways he's very very clever about it but i I just think uh, let's get on with this. You know, there's things to be said, and uh, one of the greatest ways to to get a message across is through music. And if you can do it with a way that has some integrity, isn't too sort of uh, uh, sentimental, whatever it might be, but you know, just talk in a way that gets to people. And and um, you know that for me, the the job of a of a good song is to make the listener feel like they're not alone. Yeah. And I think a piece of art can do that for a snake or a poem or or even the face of, of, a, of a baby. You know, it's just that sense of feeling something bigger than ourselves for a moment. And to be involved in that process and to see that night after night um, at my shows and the feedback I get from people, uh, some who've been following me for many, many years, is is, is amazing. And yeah. um, I'm very, very happy to be involved in such a, a, a what feels like a, a worthy uh, occupation let's uh, talk about your gig in a moment uh, but i think it's time for some music what, what, what do you want us to play well let's play the, the opening track of the uh, of uh, the new album uh, this is what i want to say is called folding uh and it was uh, the first single we released recently and um i'm playing it every night at the moment and uh, people seem to enjoy that i am folding like a kite that's lost the wind I'm holding to the remnant of these sins To a vast goodbye and a small hello I am folding, folding slow I'm staring at the parting of the way 
at the grandeur and the carnage of these days. I know my place, it is all I know. I am folding, holding slow. I've been pleading to a God I cannot find. But ours is not to bargain with the divine. And faith is such a tenuous thing to hold. See it fade. Watch me fall. Defy the steady flow. I am folding, folding slow. I surrender to the promise of this day, of a morning that will tearless be. My hairy eyes. My Yosemite, I'm folding. Please stay with me. I am folding like a kite that's lost the wind. I'm holding to the remnant of these. To a vast goodbye and a small hello. Is uh, Martin Joseph folding the first track uh, off his new album, which, as he was saying there, he, he's going to be playing live uh, when he comes to the stables on the, the 27th of January. Uh, Martin, I must just ask you a, a quick live story, because you mentioned earlier on you're a pro- prolific tourer. You, you've played as headliner, as a, a support act in, in huge venues. Um, you've got this incredible craft that you've honed over decades, but it's not always been plain sailing, has it? Just a few blips along the way. So, uh, Shirley Bassey. <laughs> Yes, uh, Cheryl. She well. First of all, Shirley Bassey. <laughs> Sorry, it's really with, unfair to do that. Jim. No, no, it's fine. Um, I found myself offered the Shirley Bassey tour. This is twenty five years ago now, yeah. I suppose. And, and I said, "Yeah, why not?" So I went out, uh, met Shirley. She was lovely. I went out and did my thing. Uh, but we started off the tour, uh, if I remember rightly, down in Bournemouth at the International Arena down there, where um, Bournemouth, perhaps not known for its uh, people into radical issues, <laughs> I, I don't know. But, you know, it's a, it's a fairly uh, 
wealthy place, etc., yeah, etc. Yeah. So the clientele. They don't come along from sandbanks, basically. It was a bit like playing to a golf club, you know. Yeah. And so immediately there was uh, complaints that I uh, wore denim on this on, on stage, for instance, in 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 uh, just opening for Dame Shirley Bassey. This was awful, blah blah blah. <laughs> so. So the management got a bit, oh, okay, you know, and and the majority of people were fine. And I played two nights in Cali with her. It was a riot, but um, they said, look, we're just, we're just, it's only a small minority, but they're, they're, they're just making a lot of noise. So we're, we're going to have to ask you to leave the tour. So, uh, and I, off you went. And off I went, yeah. You're just too edgy for us, Martin. You've got to go. <laughs> L- luckily, luckily, never too edgy to come to the stables. So it's Saturday no. the 27th of January, as always, yeah. kick off at eight o'clock. Um, as with all of our guests today, very few tickets left. Uh, if you want tickets, you need to head to stables.org uh, to find them. There are a few sort of sprinkled down the sides of the stage. Of course, the beauty of the stables, if you've never been, is that it's an open stage. So everywhere is a great view, which I'm sure is one of the many reasons why you love playing there, Martin. Absolutely. Uh, stables.org for tickets and the box office, as I've mentioned earlier on, is 019. 908-280-800. Do you ever get bored of coming to the same venue? Never. No, no, no. It's not. It's not the venue. I, there are certain venues I love coming to. Stables being one of them. I've always just had great nights there. But each night is a is a is a different book, and and uh, I make sure that happens within the set list. But also, you know, you just never know what's going to happen. And I I uh, I can be as as tired and as worn out. And as soon as I hit the platform, then we're off and running. And uh, I I I love it every moment yeah. of it. This is one of those moments with this podcast. It's all about you know giving artists a chance to tell their stories and and get behind the stories of the people who are coming on stage at the stables. But often I feel that I'm perhaps talking to people who perhaps one or two listeners maybe haven't seen live, maybe haven't even heard of. And I say this really politely. And this is one of those moments where I'm saying, go see Martin live. He he is amazing. Um, as I said earlier on, he, he's one of the rare people that is an amazing singer and an amazing instrumentalist at the same time. And you really do put more energy through you and your hands uh, than than bands with, you know, five, six, seven times the, the number of members. So this is one of those moments with this podcast where I say, look, I really mean this. Go see Martin live. It's, it's a really, really wonderful experience. I'm going to give you the chance. Normally, I just say, where can we find you online for your music? But give us also the details of where we can find the charity and then also where, where we can find you online. Okay, yeah. So uh, it's martinjoseph.net. It's Martin with a Y. Don't put an I, otherwise you get a lawyer in Dallas or something. So it's uh, M-A-R-T-Y-N-J-O-S. Nothing wrong with a lawyer in Dallas unless you were specifically looking for music. That's right. martinjoseph.net and it's letyourself.net as well, I think, or something like that. But if you go to my website, there's a link to the charity as well. And if you go to the page, you'll find a lot of hope despite some of the awful headlines we see these days. So there's a lot of wonderful people in the world doing great work every single day so be encouraged folks yeah well listen martin i've already come clean and said that we're recording this a few days before christmas even though it's coming out in it's already 2024 for anyone who's listening to it but i i, I can't fake it so i've got to issue certainly a merry christmas and above oh, all a, a 2024 full of full of uh, really great things for you and above all your your new little boy good luck with uh with being a new parent uh i i doubt it ever gets easier i've had three myself so <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't i don't remember thinking on the third one oh this is much easier than the first one i think it just it's just all yeah. the challenges keep coming well, thank you, Nick. We appreciate that. And I appreciate what you do too. It's often I do uh, interviews where people have not done their homework and you have, and I appreciate it very much. That's really kind. Good statue. Thanks, buddy. What a lovely way to finish. And hopefully this episode has been a great way for you to start your year. Above all, I hope it's whetted your appetite to come and join us again at the Stables in 2024. Alison Young has programmed a fantastic lineup of gigs and performances. Check it all out at stables.org. As ever, if you're enjoying this series, please do tell your friends. It really helps get the word out about all the work the Stables does. I'll be back in February with another edition of Turn Up the Volume. Until then, from me and all the team at the Stables, it's Happy New Year and goodbye for now. (laughs) 